Good morning. My name is Bill Morton. Our reading this morning is from Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what this law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. I, I know that after going on the end of a 23rd year at ECC, I'm sure I've told some stories over and over again, uh, just either because I forgot or because they seemed like they worked, so I told them again. So you may have heard this story that I'm going to tell again. When I was going uh, to graduate school seminary at, at Yale Divinity School, I had a, a teacher who was a wonderful teacher, uh, because of the class size, uh, he also had a TA, that's a teaching assistant. And the teaching assistant was a very bright, young philosophy student. I'm pretty sure she was younger than me, because I got started late in seminary. And on occasion, she was given the opportunity to give a lecture. And whenever she did, she would routinely try to explain a philosophical concept, and then she would lapse into some sort of analogy. You know, it's kind of like this. And as soon as she did it, she would apologize. She would say, I'm sorry, I probably shouldn't try to explain it this way, but here's something it's like. And one day after class, I walked up to her and I said, you know, I just want to make a comment about your lectures. I think they're really good. I said, but something you have said repeatedly is that you don't think you should be using analogies or stories to emphasize the concept you're trying to communicate to us. And um, maybe because I'm full of self myself or because I was a little older than her, I said, I, I think there's a problem there. And the first problem is you're showing your ignorance of pedagogical skills. In other words, if you're a great teacher, you use story. I didn't say just like Jesus did, but think of the parables. I didn't say just like Paul did, but think of Paul. I said, I, you know, that's, that's, that's the one thing. I said, but the second thing is this. Some of us, myself included, may never get it at all unless you use a story. 
So for those of us who might not get it, keep telling the story, will you? It'll help. We, we were good friends. She didn't take it the wrong way. I hope she became a better teacher when she got a real job. But when I think of the scripture, I think of that over and over again. Jesus constantly used stories. He was trying to communicate eternal truth, which is really well above our heads. And Paul, a detailed theologian, did the same thing. He routinely used analogies or stories or comparisons so that we could understand. And also he did it in particular context. So at the beginning of Romans especially in chapters 5 and 6, Paul uses an image, not so much a story, but an image with two words repeatedly, slavery and prisoner. He basically says this, we have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We talked about that last week. That is the most remarkably good news you can imagine. You can never earn your salvation, but it's been given to you by faith in Jesus Christ, absolutely free of charge. Then he goes on to say, very quickly after that, that doesn't mean Chapter 6, verse 1. That doesn't mean that since this grace is given to you freely and you've done nothing to deserve it, almost as though you couldn't help yourself, that doesn't mean that you should continue to sin so that grace may increase. You don't say to yourself, oh, it's all by grace through faith, so let's just, let's just live it up and do everything that we're not supposed to do. Paul says, no, that's so foolish. You don't live that way. You live in light and gratitude for the grace, and you follow Jesus Christ. And then, then after Paul has reminded us that we're no longer slaves to sin, we're no longer prisoners of self, then he goes on, I just love this about Paul. I want to give you a reality check. You've been saved by grace through faith. You're no longer a slave to sin. You now are a slave to righteousness, but. But here's the reality. In spite of the fact that you are no longer a slave to sin, in spite of the fact that you don't live under that weight, still, sin is going to nag you. You're going to try to live this way and you'll find yourself living that way. One part of you says, follow God, and another part of you says, don't. That's the reality of living in this present world. It might seem like you're a slave, but you're not, my friends. It's just the nagging reality of being human. And as long as you're here, in effect, it will never go away. So wait, Paul, what has changed then? It seems like I'm right back to square one. I'm still struggling with sin. Paul, in effect, says this. Here's what's changed. Before, you hardly even struggled. Before, you just served the master, namely sin. 
There may have been times where you wished to do something else, but you didn't have the power to do it. But now, what has changed is for the first time, because of faith in Jesus Christ and the grace that comes through that faith, you actually have the ability to no longer live as a slave. You actually have the ability, because of the Spirit of God, to have an inclination towards God. Your inclination was away from God. Now your inclination is towards God. He's basically saying, come on, think about it for a minute. In a way, I'm saying that to you too, and to me. On our worst days when we fail, what happens? We're overcome with remorse. Why? Because we know you weren't made for that. Why? Because we know we have an inner homing signal that leads us towards Jesus Christ. We want to please God, our Heavenly Father. Paul says, you never had that before, but now you have it. Now you have it. That's the difference. Before you were slaves to sin, now you have a new master. In terms of these first eight chapters, I'm breaking them down into three parts of the good news. The first part I just described. You're no longer a slave to sin. Part three of the good news. This is part three of the good news. I'm I'm sorry, part two of the good news. Because of part one, now there is no condemnation for those who walk in the Spirit. For Christ, the condemnation is gone. Now, you'll know from Paul's admonition here and in other places of his epistles, he's not denigrating the law. He's not saying that the law was evil and wicked. He's saying the law was insufficient. The law called us to righteousness, but the law could not save It told us the way to live, but it couldn't help us to live that way. The law did not have that power. In fact, that's not even what it was for. Now, he says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk according to the Spirit and not the flesh, because the Spirit of God... Stop and imagine this for a moment. Try to understand it if you can. The Spirit of God, which is frequently referred to as a wind. Wind has power. The Spirit of God now lives in you. It infuses life in you. It infuses desire in you. It infuses power in you. That is supernatural power, not your own. That's what it means, says Paul, to live without condemnation. That's what it means, says Paul, to walk in the Spirit, to allow the wind of the Spirit to carry you in the direction that God wants you to go because you love Him and you're so delighted that you've been redeemed. Yeah, the law wasn't able to break the power of sin or the oppression of slavery. 
but Christ did. And how says Paul? In his real human death. He condemned sin, which is to say he condemned the enemy that holds us fast. He destroyed it with his death and invites us into a beautiful eternal life. Part one of the good news, you've been saved by faith through grace. It's not of works. Second part of the good news, there's no, no, no condemnation. None. Third part of the good news, the reason that all this is possible is because of a change of status. The reason this is all possible is because through faith, you turn to God and God adopted you as his dear child. Here Paul is playing to his Gentile Roman audience. Why do I say that? Because in Jewish history, there was no real category for adoption. In the Greek-Roman culture, the understanding of adoption was very deep within their social network. People routinely adopted other children. They became a legal son or a daughter. So Paul's using that image, that analogy. You've been adopted by God through Jesus Christ. Another place, the scriptures tell us that Christ is our elder brother, leaning on that theme of adoption. This notion of adoption goes beyond the first six verses of chapter 8 that we read. It's beyond that, and this theme of adoption is described. They would have understood this theme of adoption perhaps because of their neighbors, but they would have especially understood it because of Caesar. A very high-profile individual, the highest-profile individual, Julius Caesar, adopted a young man called Octavian. That young man, Octavian, became Caesar Augustus the emperor. Does that ring a bell? Caesar Augustus was the one that declared the census where Joseph and Mary had to travel to Joseph's hometown to register. Caesar Augustus, if you know much about history, he's the first emperor to really bring peace to the Roman Empire. They call it the Pax Romana. The adopted child of Julius Caesar becomes an epic figure in the history of the Western world. And it wasn't really his son. It was someone he adopted. What we know about adoption in this particular area of the world, in this epic of history transfers in many ways to what we know about adoption today. 
the adopted one lost all his rights to his old family. He didn't legally have rights with the old family anymore. That was the loss. But he inherited a new set of rights with his new family. Absolutely new set of rights. And history. The adopted son became the heir of the father's estate. Now imagine yourself like Octavian, probably a young man in poverty, being adopted by Jude, and in a moment of time, he had all the rights of the great emperor, and he was his heir. Of course, as he later became the emperor himself. When a child was adopted, his old life was wiped out. What do I mean by that? All debts were canceled. All of them. The power of the law that might have seized that young man or young woman for something he or she did wrong no longer on them. They're past with all its filth and dysfunction was washed away. This person who's adopted is a new person in the eyes of the law, a new person in his own eyes. It's one more thing about the adoption process in the Roman Empire. When a child was adopted, there were witnesses at the adoption. Seven, to be exact. All seven witnessed the signing, the legal documents. For what purpose? Suppose the father died and someone disputed the adoption records. The witnesses would testify. They were there to affirm, confirm, seal the adoption with their presence. Paul uses that image routinely concerning the spirit. He's the deposit. He's the seal. He's the witness that we are the children of God. You don't have to defend yourself before evil. You don't have to show your adoption papers. The Spirit of God witnesses on your behalf. What a beautiful image. Here's the point, my friends. I want you to imagine adoption. I mean, I want you to imagine being the child who had virtually nothing. And was adopted by a father and mother. Suppose that child walked up to the day of the adoption. And then looked at his parents and said, I don't want to do this. I'm going to run away. Because I don't want to be your child. We would look at that child and say, you've made a foolish decision, a tragic mistake. 
I think that that is sometimes the nub of unbelief. A person encounters this good news, and in effect they say to themselves, no, I don't want to be adopted. I'm going to run the other way, but God is giving you everything. I don't care. I'll leave it all behind. I want to be me. To leave it all behind and be you is to be a slave to sin. To be adopted by God is to be a child of God, given an inheritance that is eternal. So if you're hearing the call of God, if you realize that this being called God himself wants you to be his child Don't say no. Say yes today. If you do say yes today for the first time, please tell someone. Talk to me. Talk to anybody on staff. Talk to a person who's your friend. And let them know the news. You've been adopted by God. Here's something else about that adoption. There's no slavery from the past. You're free. Absolutely free. Second thing about that adoption, there's no power transferred from the past. All your debts are paid. All your debts are paid. All your sin is canceled. Sometimes you know, don't you, that you can receive the adoption. And then in the throes of life itself and the haunting memories of your sins from the past, you say to yourself or perhaps even out loud to someone else, But my debts, they're not there. You say to yourself or someone else, but I'm not worthy to be a child of God. But you are. You say to yourself or someone else, I can't be good enough. You don't have to be. That's the definition of grace All those objections that come into your head, they're lies. They're bold-faced lies from the pit. And you must reject them. And you must say to yourself, if not internally, out loud, I am a child of God. There is therefore no condemnation to me because I'm walking not in the flesh, but by the power of the Spirit. Thanks be to God. You know one of the most powerful things about being here on Sunday morning? Singing those words. Listening to other people repeat those words beside you. Saying out loud for yourself when you don't feel like you have the energy during the week to believe it. Shouting out loud in praise. 
I am redeemed. There's no condemnation. Thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, there's no other philosophy that gives you this good news. There's no other religion that gives you this good news. That's why it's so much good news. It's directly from God. It's true. And it's for everyone. So my advice for all of us today, right here, right now, take a deep breath. Okay? I I really want us to do that. Ready? One, two, three. Deep breath. There is no condemnation. So let's live like it. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for this good news, which comes to us not just as words, but comes to us as a historical reality because of Jesus Christ. The one who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And that is good news. So, Lord, help us not to protest the good news. Help us not to be overwhelmed by self-doubt that we're not worthy of the good news. Help us to forget the fact that our sins, which might be in the past and might be in the present, help us to forget the fact that they no longer have power over us. Yes, they may annoy us, but we don't have to live under their slavery. Give us the grace of freedom, Lord. Remind us that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and help us to live like it. In the name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.